0: Please turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, and it's found on page 1,408 of the church Bible. Well, in the evening services, we've been looking at the letters uh, to the seven churches in Revelation. Now, these letters are very specific, and so it's easy to think that they are only relevant to the churches that they're written to. But in actual fact, these seven churches, they represent every church in this world. And so their failures, their triumphs, their struggles, they're all the sort of things that all churches experience. And the number seven, that speaks of completeness. And so Christ is writing to the complete and to the universal church. He's writing to us here in Bloomington this morning. And we've looked at two letters already. One to the church of Ephesus. Uh, There we saw a church that was strong on doctrine, It was doing all the right things, and yet it had lost its first love. It needed to repent and be fired up again by the love of Christ that first motivated them. Then we looked at the letter to the church in Smyrna, a church that remained faithful even under attack, and yet was in fear of persecution. And Christ reminds them not to be afraid, he has promised them the crown of life. He has promised them an eternity in heaven. Well, in your bulletin, you will see a summary of these instructions that Christ gives to the churches and to the churches that we've considered so far. Well, today we come to the church in Pergamon, or Pergamos, as it is here, and Jesus' letter to this church can easily, summarize, can easily be summarized that they are courageous and yet compromised. So let's listen to God's word. Revelation and it's chapter 2 and it's verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Thing I hate repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it amen may God bless us the reading of his word Well, many of you have read or watched The Lord of the Rings, and in this story we read of the Fellowship of the Ring, a group of various individuals, four hobbits, a wizard, a man, a ranger, a dwarf, and an elf, an unlikely crew, and their task was to destroy the ring to prevent the evil Dark Lord Sauron getting his hands in the ring and controlling Middle-earth. And in this fellowship you see great courage as they face many difficulties. As they traveled through the land of Mordor to Mount Doom to where they would destroy the ring. And you had folk like Frodo and Sam who were committed to the cause. To see the ring destroyed and showed feats of courage, especially for hobbits. But we also saw within the fellowship compromise. There were those who were tempted by the ring to use its immense power for their own selfish advantage. And that's what makes the story so compelling. Would they fulfill the mission, even willing to die in Sauron's territory? Or will they compromise and fail in the mission, tempted by the ring's power? Well, that's similar to what's going on in the church in Pergamon. Many of the congregation are facing tough times in Satan's territory. We read of how they were courageous in their stand for Christ, even willing to die. And yet they were also, there were also those who were willing to compromise with the world. That's true for us today too. So you are to be courageous in your faith in Christ, but you are to repent when you compromise with this world. For Christ is the one who gives you manna. He gives you satisfaction. And brings you into his kingdom. And so children, I encourage you to draw a picture of manna, of this bread of life that always satisfies. And remember that it is in Christ that you know satisfaction greater than anything this world has to offer. So firstly, listen to this encouragement from your king. That he knows what you're facing. So in considering the seven letters to the seven churches, it's crucial that you remember where these letters come from. They're not from a consultancy firm trying to give advice on church growth who understand nothing of the particulars of the church. No, these letters are from the king who repeatedly says, I know, I know the churches. In this case, to the church in Pergamon, he writes, I know where you live. Pergamon, he describes, is where Satan's throne is located. Why is it described in this way? Well, Pergamon, like most Roman cities, had many temples. However, Pergamon was special in that it was a religious center for Asia Minor. It was the ancient equivalent of Knock or Lourdes, where pilgrims would travel to this city. And that's because Pergamon had this temple dedicated to Asclepius, Aesclep- And Asclepius was the god of healing. He symbolized with a snake on a rod, and this symbol is frequently used in medicine today. And so people would travel to Pergamon to be healed of the various ailments that they had. But this symbol of the serpent would remind believers of Satan. Pergamon also was a political capital of the Roman province of Asia. That was until Ephesus was made the capital of Asia Minor. And as a result of being this political capital, it was a center for emperor worship. The Roman Emperor Augustus, he set up a temple in Pergamon, a temple that was dedicated to himself. And so he began the cult of emperor worship. What does this mean for the Christians? Well, we get an idea of the hostility that they faced from a letter that was written by a Roman governor of another province, who wanted to set up a test of allegiance to Rome for his citizens. And in this letter, he tells his people, recite a prayer to the gods at my dictation. Make an offering of wine and incense to the emperor's statue. Uh, moreover, curse Christ. Well, it would be much worse than Pergamon, a city that prided itself in this emperor worship. But in this dark city of Pergamon, there was this group of believers and they would be under tremendous pressure surrounded by this imperial cult living under the threat of death for not submitting in the worship to the emperor it's no wonder that Jesus describes Pergamum as Satan's throne for it seems that Satan is in control in this city but it was a comfort for the believers here that Jesus Christ knew what it was like for them Facing the pressures that they face on a daily basis. And Jesus reminds them that he is the true king. It's not the Roman emperor. It's not Satan. No, it's King Jesus. And we see that he is the one who holds the double-edged sword. He is the one who is the ultimate judge. He is the one that you need to submit to. Now, none of us live in Pergamon. We aren't facing this type of pressure. And yet we are not free from hostilities. They may come from family, may come from work colleagues, may come from fellow students who like to mock our faith in Christ. You may work in a system that is completely anti-Christian in its ethos. But Christ knows about it. And he says, I know where you live. Remember, I'm the true king. And so you are to be encouraged. You are to take heart. I am with you even there. Well, Hugh Latimer was one of the leading reformers in the church in the 16th century. And he frequently preached in front of King Henry VIII. And one time Latimer offended the king by the boldness of his sermon. And so he was commanded to address the king again the following week and to apologize Well, Latimer turned up, and he began the sermon by talking to himself in the full hearing of King Henry VIII. Hugh Latimer, said Latimer, do you know who you are preaching to today? You are preaching to the high and mighty monarch, his majesty the king, who can take away your life if you offend him. Therefore take heed, lest you say a word which will offend him. But then, Hugh, consider also who has sent you to preach, It is the great and mighty God. He is all present and he sees everything and he can cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care that you preach the message faithfully. Well, Hugh Latimer proceeded to preach exactly the same sermon to Henry VIII as he did the week before. Only this time he did it with even greater boldness. Latimer knew that Jesus Christ is his true king. And so the Christians at Pergamon, they needed to hear that Jesus is their true king, that he knows that they're living in this hostile environment. And likewise, you need to hear this. You need to remember that Jesus is your true king. You need to listen to his encouragement, that he knows where you're at and what you're facing as you seek to remain true to him. Well, secondly, notice that you are to be courageous in your faith in Christ. Verse 13. So Jesus commended the Christians of Pergamon for their courage. Jesus knows their works. So even though they live where Satan has his throne, they remain true to Christ's name. They did not renounce their faith in Christ. They continued to serve Christ and they stood firm in their faith, even facing death. And we see that death was a real threat Antipas was killed now we don't know much about him most likely he was a church leader here leaders in the church were often the target so to leave the church leadership or leaderless and vulnerable to collapse church history has it that Antipas was slowly roasted alive in a bronze bull or a brazen bull And so this was a metal sculpture of a bull that was hollow. It would have a door on the side and the victim would be placed inside. And then the bull would be placed over a fire pit. And the bull had some form of acoustic apparatus that converted the screams of the victim into the sound of a bull. It was a really bizarre and barbaric means of killing Christians. And yet the Christians in Pergamum, they remained true to Christ no matter if that meant death. And remember, these are not super-Christians. They were ordinary people willing to die for Christ. But they saw Christ as their Lord and King. That's a challenge for us today. How courageous are you in your faith in Christ? Now, we enjoy freedom compared to Christians in Pergamon. But how courageous are you to use this freedom... To tell others about Christ. Too often we remain silent because we're embarrassed. We are too afraid of what others will think of us. Now, you are to be courageous in your faith in Christ. As Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Be courageous and tell others of your hope in Christ. And thankfully, we don't find this courage within ourselves. Think of what the Apostle Paul went through. He was courageous, but we read of him asking for prayer from others to help him be courageous. And we can read of that in Ephesians 6. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that, I, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So let us pray that we would be a light for Christ, whether it's at work, whether it's at uni, whether it's with our friends or your family members. Pray that you would be courageous in your faith in Christ and be ready to bear the costs involved in making a stand for Christ. One group of missionaries who were courageous and even faced death were the team of five men that included Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who sought to make contact with the Waodani tribe of Indians in Ecuador. When they finally made contact and sought to befriend this tribe, they were speared to death. They were courageous, and they paid the ultimate price. While it seemed like a waste, their sacrifice, their courage, it inspired many, many more to go into the mission field. One of the widows, Elizabeth Elliot, would herself reach out to this tribe, and she would make lasting contact with the tribe, leading to the gospel transformation of this violent tribe to one that loves Christ. And the saint said, and people who do not know the Lord ask, why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries? They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. Well, this courage enabled him to be a faithful martyr Just like Antipas and Pergamon. Will you too be courageous in your faith in Christ? Well, thirdly, you're not to compromise with this world. Verses 14 to 15. So although Jesus was pleased with the courage of this church, he was displeased at how they had compromised. Satan had attacked the church from the outside, but he had failed because the church was courageous. And so he uses another tactic. He would attack the church from within. There were some in the church who believed in false doctrines. And they were teaching them to others. In the church in Pergamon, they were tolerating these false teachers. They were letting Satan in by the back door. And this is what Jesus had against them. This false teaching may only involve a few. But it's like gangrene on a foot. It will spread. And unless it's dealt with, it will corrupt the church. But what is the false teaching in this church at Pergamum? Well, it was the teaching of Balaam. And we considered Balaam in our Old Testament reading. He failed in bringing curses on Israel, but he suggested to Balak that he should send the beautiful woman of Moab into Israel to seduce Israel's young men. It was a plan to bring Israel down from the inside, And it worked. The young men committed sexual immorality with these women, and they end up worshipping the Moab gods. And so Balaam became synonymous with false teaching that aims at compromising faith in God by being enticed by this world. And that's what's happening here at Pergamon. The Nicolaitans were the modern equivalent of, of Balaam. Now We aren't sure exactly what they taught, but most likely it was an encouragement for Christians to compromise. That is not important to be distinct from the Roman world that they lived in. Remember, the Romans were demanding the idolatry of recognizing Caesar as Lord. The Christians could not do such a thing, but the Nicolaitans, well, they would have watered down this stance of the church by saying, it's okay to say that Caesar is Lord. God will understand, He doesn't mind you saying it because, well, you don't really mean it anyway. As I said, Pergamon was dominated by these temples. Every trade, every grouping had their God, and with it, a temple. And we shouldn't imagine that these temples were serene places of worship. Instead, they were places of feasting and immorality. But they were also places of belonging, places of community. And these Nicolaitans would teach that, yes, trust Christ, but that doesn't mean you can't go to these pagan feasts you have to eat and it could be a good influence in these temples it's better to fit into culture rather than go against it don't be narrow-minded in your view of, immor- of morality. that sexual immorality is not a big deal that's how it works here in Rome in the Roman culture and to these false teachers persecution was not worth it They would think that it's better to be tolerant so you're more useful to God, so you can continue to provide for your family. What good will come out of being killed for Christ's sake? And so you can see how the teachings of the Nicolaitans would be very appealing. But this is what Christ is calling out. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, he praised their hatred of the Nicolaitans' practices. But it was the church here at Pergamum Was tolerating this teaching. But it's not tolerance. It's compromise. It's sin. And that's why Jesus says, I have this against you. And these attitudes sound very familiar to the church today. The church often takes its cues, not from the Bible, but from the world. And so the church's view of marriage, the church's view of sexuality, of abortion, euthanasia, It's blurring with the world's attitude. The church likes to see itself as being more tolerant, more relevant to this world. God sees it as compromise. So where are you tempted to compromise? Young people, young adults especially, It can be seen in the friends that you hang out with. You don't realize the influence that bad friendship can have in your life. But a bad friend will lead you astray. They will encourage you to compromise. They will distract you from Christ. Compromise can happen in who you marry. It's easy to think it doesn't matter who you marry. But it does matter. You are to marry a Christian. Not just any Christian. It's important you marry someone who shares your doctrinal beliefs. That way you can encourage one another in your faith in Christ. You can grow together. In your love for God. Another area where Christians compromise is on materialism. We often have this ambition to get all that we want out of life. But that's a worldly goal. You're being as equally selfish as this world. And that mindset can even affect how Christians look at church. They see church as what they can get out of it. Instead of what they can give. No, you are to be distinct from this world you're not to compromise. And the danger with compromise is that it's subtle. And it's hard to even tell that you're compromising. C.S. Lewis puts it well in the Chip Letters. He writes, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. If you find that you have more in common with the world than with the church ask yourself why that is quite possibly you have compromised with this world well fourthly you are to repent of compromise or face the sword of judgment verse 16 if you don't stop compromising it will spread and it will lead to your destruction don't presume that you will be okay Well, how can you put it right? Jesus tells us, verse 16, you are to repent. You are to ask God for forgiveness. But repentance is more than simply asking for forgiveness. Instead, it's doing a complete 180. It's turning your life around. For those at Pergamon, it would be to avoid these temples altogether. Yes, they might further your career. Yes, they might offer you prosperity. Yes, they may even be enjoyable. But they will lead you to compromise. You too must consider where you're being tempted or who it is that's tempting you and you're to cut it off. You can't have a foot in both camps. Now is this an overreaction? Surely we don't have to be so extreme. Well, we see here a warning from Christ. I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is threatening judgment on this church in Pergamon. In the same way, he said that he would remove the lampstand from the church in Ephesus, he would bring the sword of judgment on this church of Pergamon. And this same threat is applicable to the church today and to all Christians who are tempted to compromise. And so you must repent of it. You must not tolerate compromise in others. That was the issue here in Pergamon they had allowed these false teachers to have an influence on other believers. That means you're not to be afraid of speaking into fellow believers' lives and calling out sin. You you have to be gracious in how you do this. You have to speak the truth in love. But often, more than often, we're silent. We say nothing. We may even laugh off when someone is compromising, saying it's not a big deal. Now, that is not to be your reaction. You are to take it seriously. And if you're receiving the rebuke, it's easy to be defensive. No, in humility, listen and see if it is true. See if you do see compromise in your life. You should welcome this in your life, albeit it's not easy medicine to swallow. You should be quick to repent of it. Don't hold on to compromise, don't hold on to this world. And said, "See Christ as Lord." There is a story of how Lord, or Admiral Lord Nelson, received the surrender of a French admiral who had been conquered by Nelson and his fleet. The defeated admiral came on board Nelson's flagship in full ceremonial dress in order to make his surrender. And he walks towards Nelson. He puts out his hand in order to shake Nelson's hand as a sign of surrender. But before Nelson would shake his hand, he requested that the French admiral first hand over his sword. Well, repentance involves complete surrender. There is to be no compromise. Satan is very subtle. He wishes to reduce the distinctiveness of the church with this world. And so you must repent of it. And that involves complete surrender. No compromise. Well, fifthly, You are to be reassured by the promise that in Christ you are satisfied. He brings you into his kingdom. In verse 17. Now this maybe feels like a very heavy sermon. Maybe you're bristling at the thought of what this might mean for you. Maybe you're thinking, it's not worth it. Well, Jesus finishes his letter with a promise and you will see that it is worth it. Jesus speaks of the one who overcomes the one who is victorious, the one who does not compromise. He will be given some of the hidden manna to eat. Manna, remember, is what the Israelites ate when they were in the wilderness. They were sustained by God, by this bread from heaven, and it was miraculous provision. They simply had to trust God for this provision, but the Israelites, they failed to do so when they followed Balaam and they sought their satisfaction in, in the Moabites. And so Jesus Christ, he takes this picture of manna and describes himself as the bread of life. And you likewise are on a journey. You're not yet home. The world is not your home. But remember, on life's journey, you are provided for. In Christ, you are provided for. He sustains you. It's hidden because the world cannot see this bread that sustains you. The world does not recognize the strength that you receive from God. So do not keep craving the food of Egypt. Instead, you are to be satisfied in Christ. That is how you overcome the temptation to compromise with this world. You can be faithful, for only in Christ are you satisfied. But then Jesus mentions that the one who overcomes receives white stones. Now these white stones are a little harder to understand but it's been suggested that this was how you got into the temples. This is how you got into different trade guilds. You needed a pass of some kind. And often it was a stone with your name written on it. Jesus is giving you a white stone. And a white stone was also used in the courtrooms in the ancient world. Jurors, they voted for acquittal with a white stone. But a black stone would be used for condemnation, for conviction. And the citizens of Pergamon, had given the Christians a black stone. Yes, that would get them into the temple, get them into the feasts, but it would only be temporary. It would never satisfy. It would lead to their destruction. Well, Christ gives them white stones of acquittal, an assurance of eternal life, the writing of a new name. This comes from Isaiah 62. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name, You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed for second. In Christ, you are a new person, and so you've been given a new name. Just as a child who has been adopted takes on a new name, in Christ, you have received this new name, and you receive the security and salvation he provides. And so to a church struggling with the world in which they live, what better comfort can they receive? Believe this promise of manna and white stones for knowing that in Christ you're satisfied, knowing that in Christ you're secure, the world will no longer entice you to compromise. So Pergamon was courageous, but it was compromised. What would Jesus say of you? So remember, you are to be courageous in your faith in Christ. But repent when you compromise with this world. For Christ is the one who gives you manna. He gives you satisfaction. And he brings you into his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you for your word. And yet this is a heavy word this morning. Lord, so often... Um, we struggle in the world that we live in. We struggle with the pressures that we're facing, especially for being a Christian. And So Lord, help us to remain true to you, that we would not compromise. And uh, Lord, help us in the friends that we choose, in our, um, our spouses, in our work uh, that we work at, even with materialism, different areas that we're so tempted to compromise with. Instead, Lord, that we would be courageous in our faith in you and stand firm for you. And Lord, uh, we thank you that in you there is forgiveness. And so, Lord, that we would repent of this and seek uh, to put you first. And Lord, we thank you for this wonderful promise. And we pray you would help us uh, to meditate and to dwell often on the hidden manna that we enjoy in you that in you we are satisfied, that in you we have the strength we need. You sustain us. Lord, that we would remember that we have these white stones with our names on it, that we can be sure of a pass into heaven because of you, because you have adopted us and given us new names. And so we praise you and thank you for this. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. I'll please turn